0: Hi, this is Professor of Photography, Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number 12 for History of Photography. This class session deals with manipulated images, taking a look at the way in which images have been altered over the time that photography has been here, and certainly dipping into our 20th and 21st century realities of digital photography. So here we are joining our class in progress. Today's topic, the past is prologue, looking at manipulative images or manipulated images uh, and seeing if we kind of kind of come to the to the digital age. and uh, just because apparently her last week or so was filled with or at least we couple of weeks filled okay. with irony. Yes. Uh, Beth sent me this uh, in email last night, I guess. I it didn't was, see right, it till this night, morning, yeah, but uh, where did you find this? This the was in Santa Fe. I was walking the streets in Santa Fe. What has passed his prologue? Just I just liked it, and I didn't even connect it until. Like and then all of a sudden, looked at the class topics, and you know, <laughs> here we are. So, um, anyway, what has passed his prologue? Uh, so, our overarching question for the afternoon is: How do we get from this, a picture considered to be a, a fairly important and certainly powerful portrait, To this as a picture that we might also consider to be a portrait Uh, and kind of to see if we can bridge that gap between those two different kinds of photographs and see if we can figure out where we are in our current digital age and see if we can kind of uh, examine how we got here and maybe even examine where we're going uh, with all of uh, all of this stuff. So uh, another sort of overarching concept for the afternoon is that some people are never satisfied. Some people are never satisfied. I mean, here we had, in 1839, this medium that suddenly did the thing that everybody wanted. Everybody wanted realistic pictures that were very, very accurate of the way the world looked, especially of the way people looked, And they had it. They had it. They had everything that they wanted right there. And yet, even though they had that in 1839, this imaging system that did for people what painters had struggled with for centuries, to reproduce the world exactly as it was, even though they had that, the first thing some of its earliest practitioners tried to do was to try to make the world look different by altering the photograph in various ways. And some of the ways that they did it were attempting to overcome some of photography's shortcomings. And here are some that, you know, we've sort of talked about it at least a couple of times. Lack of proper color response in the emulsions of, uh, of photographs. So uh, that wet plate collodion, overexposed blue, underexposed red uh, problem. Long exposure times with insensitive materials which wasn't then able to stop motion very accurately. Monochromatic renditions of scenes uh, was another problem. Uh, And then uh, the desire to alter detail in some way. So most of these things were considered some sort of a shortcoming of photography. And ever since that first decade of experimentation in the medium, a bunch of photographers hadn't been satisfied with what the camera gave them. Uh, And they pursued a wide variety of manipulative methods to achieve their own personal desire to have a picture look a particular way. And, you know, as we've seen as we've gone along the path this term, uh, some have tried to make photography look more like painting. Others have tried to make photography look more like, well, what they thought photography was supposed to look like. Because remember, they're inventing something that they have no guidebook for. You know, they have no sense of where they're supposed to go precisely with this. Uh, so, uh, and some, of course, tried to make photography uh, into something else altogether. And uh, uh, almost all of the people who were altering the document of the photograph were trying to figure out sort of what that limit of photography was and then invent some method of kind of going beyond that limit. And at the center of all of that was a question about photography being real. And then the the sort of underlying question of, well, was it real? So in a painting, a painter who creates a a painting uh, might imagine that he could make uh, a thousand-eyed monster, right? Make a painting of some creature that he comes up with in his imagination. And all he has to do to make that happen is put pencil or paintbrush down on the canvas and start imagining what that creature might look like. But the photographer, in order to do it, either has to find or make a thousand-eyed monster in order to make the photograph of the thousand-eyed monster. Uh, The photographer is bound to the real world. The photographer is stuck with what the real world offers and has to either figure out how to manufacture the monster or create some illusion that creates the mental image of that monster. Uh, Or, or, you know, perhaps find it. Um, So one of the things that's interesting about photography is that when we see a photograph of something or some place or someone, we, the viewer, are unconsciously convinced that if we'd been there, we would see it exactly as we see it in the picture. That somehow, if we had been standing in that place, we would see that thing, that place, that person, exactly as the photograph shows it to us uh, just then in terms of shape and texture and form and light and everything else. And yet, we're shown time and time and time again that that isn't really true. It's not really true. It's not really true that if we were to stand in that exact place and look at that exact scene, that we would see what we saw in the photograph because the photograph takes some liberties with that. Uh, So uh, we also know that photographs can be completely pure illusion. The photographs can be faked, altered, enhanced, changed in radical ways. And despite the fact that we know that, it does not shake our implicit belief in the photographic truth. Photographs in our heads are real things. And yet we've shown over and over again that they are not necessarily completely real. So let's kind of just re-examine a few of these changes that we've seen people make to photographs. Here's a photograph or actually a negative of a photograph by a guy named John Murray. Um, He was uh, a medical doctor by training, but he excelled as a photographer. Uh, He was a Scottish-born physician. Uh, Introduced to photography around uh, 1849. And uh, uh, he was in the medical service of the Army of the East India Company. uh, And uh, he had been involved in photography and began to recognize that he could retouch his images by blanking out certain sections on his negative, uh, both in glass negatives and also in some of the paper negatives. Uh, that he was using, because one of the things that he recognized was that using Fox Talbot's process of paper negative, paper positive, the paper negative was easily drawn on with a pencil. You could alter details, you could fill in stuff, you could block out certain areas. Um, And he also recognized that there were some chemical treatments that he could use to his negatives to enhance or bring out some details in shadow areas. So he was somebody who was kind of Uh, pushing the envelope of potentially kind of retouching pictures. And retouching had been a kind of a controversial thing, at least in the beginnings of photography. Uh, A photographer named Franz Havnsteigl, a leading portrait photographer in Germany, uh, showed at an 1855 exposition in Paris a retouch negative uh, with a print made from both before and after the retouching and showing how he could make somebody look uh, more attractive by retouching the negative before he made the print. And a lot of photographers found the process really detestable because they said, you know, photography is supposed to be real. It's not supposed to be retouched. But what also happened was that people began to expect that in portraits of themselves, that there would be this possibility of removing the signs of age or the signs of excessive consumption of food or drink or whatever that might suggest that, you know, they were different from the way they were seen in the photograph. And also a lot of people began to want color added to their pictures to remove the monochromatic rendition that early photography presented itself with. And we've already talked quite a bit about Gustave Le Gray uh, uh, in terms of the way in which he's looking at... uh, thinking about creating a kind of synthetic world. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this photograph, and and others uh, like it, uh, for example, uh, the photographs by uh, Raylander and Robinson, was that uh, when we look at these pictures, at first we sort of relate them to our Photoshop world present, right? We kind of relate it to the idea that what we're looking at is sort of an early version of Photoshop, but the other part of this that you have to think about is that these guys were thinking about these pictures in a way that they really would have thought about painted imagery, that it was synthetic, that there shouldn't be a limit to what it was that you got to record in a picture. So whether it's Ray Lander in The Two Ways of Life uh, or the picture Hard Times in the lower left, or whether it is uh, Henry Peach Robinson and his Fading Away, and we've got this great example of how uh, Robinson uh, you know, planned out his, his photographs. What we're looking at are pictures that are never pictures that existed in reality. They're all composited images that are put together in some way. Robinson wrote a book about the kind of photography that he practiced. It was called Pictorial effect in photography, Um, and in it he wrote that any, quote, dodge, trick, and conjugation uh, of any conjugation, conjuration, any dodge, trick, and conjuration of any kind is open to the photographer's use. It is his imperative duty, his imperative duty to avoid the main, the base, and the ugly and to aim to elevate his subject to avoid awkward forms and correct the unpicturesque. Pretty interesting, right? So here's a guy, uh, you know, writing in the 1850s and saying that it's the photographer's imperative duty to avoid main base and ugly and to elevate subjects, to change the document, avoid awkward forms, correct the unpicturesque. And it's also interesting to note that this picture, fading away, elicited a tremendous amount of criticism in its day. And the criticism wasn't devoted to the picture, or the fact that it was created synthetically by combining several different images, as we've discussed before. But rather, the criticism was leveled at the, the sort of morality of whether it should be possible to tell the true story of the dying girl. Now, she wasn't really a dying girl. She's really an actress hired to play the part. But from the 19th century viewer's point of view, this was so real that there was this criticism of the fact that you know maybe it's not right to show a photographic document of a dying girl. And what's really interesting is that from the 19th century reader's point of view, somebody reading the literature of the day, a photograph uh, was patently different from a written description of a fictional character. You know, you might read a story about this young girl you know, getting sick and dying. But the photographic document of that exact young girl getting sick and dying, it was something that was very difficult for the 19th century uh, mind to kind of wrap itself around. Uh, And the difference between fiction and reality in a document that should be real. So the death was too much for them? They didn't like the whole... The death wasn't too much for them. The documentation of it was too much. And and the fact that, you know, if you're reading in a story, you know, say something by Dickens, and somebody, you know, gets consumption and dies, that is okay because it's a fictional character. You know it's a story, but here's a story, and while this is a fictional character, it's a fictional character with a face that you'd recognize on the street if you walked by her, right? And it, it kind of comes to play the same kind of role that sometimes we have with... The, the difference between you know a character on a television show or a movie and that person in real life you know we sort of assume that the actor might be like that in the real world when in fact the actor isn't like that at all in the real world they're playing a character um, so uh, you know so it 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 kind of uh, it, it kind of plays off of that that idea so it's no it's and what's interest that's what really what's interesting is that they weren't that squeamish about that kind of a death thing. They were just squeamish about the fact that it was a death of somebody whose face was known, right? You know. So and and they couldn't separate the difference between the fiction of the picture and the fact that the picture was fictional, but of a real person. So, and uh, you may recall I had some of these in the classroom uh, a while back when we were looking at portraiture, uh, but. There's another application of multiple printing, uh, and, and that is these composited images that try to end, lend a, a sense of uh, artistic flair to uh, photographic documents. So these are from a, a photo studio in a you know sort of medium-sized uh, Michigan town, uh, so these are people who are wanting to have their portraits made, and the studio offers them the option of having something that looks more artistic. And of course, one of the things you can kind of see is that the template is the same for these, these two. It's the same studio, right? So, you know, Stonich and Sturtz, or whatever it is, uh, use the same template, and it's just a piece of glass plate material that had a section of it that was you know, blanked out so that they could double print the other picture of the person in there, right? So uh, there were commercial applications for this idea of multiple printing that went beyond the kinds of things we've seen Raylander and Robinson do. So these are 1880s, 1890s. The daguerreotype, when it first came out, was often called a mirror with a memory. And in fact, if you saw one of the daguerreotypes I brought into the classroom a long time ago, you may recall that the mirror surface of the image was one of its sort of trademark or hallmark pieces, right? It, the, the fact that it's this super shiny surface that requires looking at it in a kind of particular way. So it was often called the mirror with a memory. But one of the things that people began to do oftentimes with these pictures was alter them with mirrors. Remember that the daguerreotype laterally reversed everything. If you had a beauty mark on your right cheek, the beauty mark suddenly ends up on your left cheek because the image from the lens is being laterally reversed. The plate could be turned upside down to make it right side up, but it couldn't be reversed the other way around because it was an opaque plate. So photographers began to explore what happens when you shoot into mirrors, not only because of the illusionistic nature of things like, you know, photographing a person in a mirror like this, but also the kind of uh, surrealistic qualities that can result from making a picture in an environment that's very much like what you might see in a department store you know, mirror set um, and playing with the idea of what photography is and how it's showing the real world. And that kind of idea uh, came into this kind of an idea. So a naivete about photography gave rise to something called spirit photography, which attempted to play upon people's desire to communicate with those who had gone beyond, whatever beyond might be. So it was closely tied in with a movement called the Spiritualist Movement, which started in the mid-19th century. And the Spiritualist Movement had a, uh, a belief that a medium, could help a person communicate with someone from the afterlife. The medium typically was somebody who uh, had some special powers or special intuition that helped them connect the person in the living world with the person in the afterlife. Uh, So uh, spirit uh, photography is directly connected to uh, this spiritualist movement, and it's also connected to a period of time of general naivete about photography in a a sort of general way. And that naivete is really based on a sort of, like, people not getting how photography works. So we can look at these pictures, and we can sort of see, oh, well, you know, they get these guys to pose like this, and the exposure is 30 seconds long, and they get this person in this white gown to come in for 10 seconds of that 30 seconds and then leave. Uh, Or they make a multiple exposure. You know, they make one exposure of the person and then uh, another exposure of the two guys. The Melander brothers were famous for this. Uh, And then, you know, composite those two negatives together. Um, So we can kind of imagine how these pictures would be made because of our understanding of how photography works. That if somebody is only in the frame for... Of sort of a small part of the overall exposure, we might get a ghosted image. But the general public wouldn't have understood that that was something that was possible to do photographically. And so they would begin to believe uh, that these things were possible. So these photographs, made by a whole lot of photographers, uh, almost all of whom were preying on uh, this this sort of hope or faith that those who had left this world really wanted to and were able to communicate with those who were left behind. And those people believed that these photographs were their loved ones. That power of suggestion was quite strong. Uh, did they make a lot of money off of these? Or yeah, this was, a, this was definitely a a scam sort of a situation where people would make a lot of money really completely playing on the, the sort of hopes and dreams of, of those people who are left behind in the living world while others have died and moved along. And you know, for any of you, and myself included, who you know, have lost somebody super important in their lives uh, through death, you know, there's never a time where you don't sort of wish, wow, wouldn't it be great to be able to have just one conversation, you know, one sort of possible conversation. And if you're naive enough and that hope is strong enough, there might be this idea that what you could do uh, is communicate in some way. So uh, in our present time, you know, here we are 2014, we see the supernatural as something being the opposite of technology. To us, this stuff seems to be the patent opposite of, like, you know, the Internet or other kinds of technologies uh, that that we use every day. But to many people of the 19th century, the technologies of the day seemed supernatural in and of themselves. The science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's a pretty interesting quote, right? Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I, you know, I can remember in my head, uh, the, you know, in my memory, the first time I connected my computer to the outside world and being sort of amazed that I could go and through this network communicate with somebody somewhere else. It was pretty astonishing to me. Um, I remember facts the same way, sort of. Like how is it possible to make that to make that work? So we've looked at this book a couple of different times here. Oops, there she is. Oops, didn't mean to, didn't mean to do that. I hate when I do that. I pushed the button and I wasn't prepared for how slow Rebecca Solnit's book was coming in. So Rebecca Solnit, uh, really one of my very favorite writers. Uh, from her book, *River of Shadows*, uh, and again the subtitle of this book, which you know if if you're if you're one of those judge a book by its cover the subtitle is what really sucked me in on this book before i bought it uh, Edward Moybridge of the Technological Wild West who wouldn't want to read a book about Edward Moybridge Moybridge and the Technological Wild West uh, so in this book Solnit writes a lot about the ways in which technology impacted the 19th century and in it she says the changes brought about by technology seemed Supernatural at first. And photography was associated with death in both the many, many images of the dead made during the early years of the medium and in the way a photograph seemed to cheat death by making at least appearance permanent. Photographs seemed to cheat death by making appearance permanent. The physical appearance of someone or something. So the idea that the camera could not only preserve the appearance of the living for as long as desired gave rise to the notion that the medium of photography could also bring the dead back from beyond the grave. Uh, And these pictures are a testament to this. So for us, in our time, it might be difficult to comprehend that power of belief and the power of suggestion and hope and dream Uh, that could turn a double exposure of a dummy in a sheet into a miraculous message from the afterlife. And it's preposterous in some ways that someone could claim that these were dead people that we now know through a photograph. And yet, we can look at lots and lots of photographs like this early portrait, where we feel that we know something about these people and the bond between them. And so I would submit that it is possible to receive messages sent by those who have been dead for many years. We don't need necessarily a seance. We don't need that medium. We maybe just need the medium of photography. We need photography to kind of help us bridge that gap between what was and where we are now. Uh, Photography has contained within itself this remarkable mystical power to connect us to the past in a really tangible way. Um, Pretty terrific picture, Daguerreotype image. So getting back to uh, the idea of manipulating these pictures, uh, color was often added to these early photographs to give them a more natural or pleasant uh, appearance. Uh, So... You know, we'll see, we've seen lots of hand-colored images. uh, And it was one of the first complaints that people had about photography when it started. Hey, where's the color? And it's sort of of surprising, right? Everybody gets the thing that they want, the real image of the real world, but where's the color? So adding back the color by hand-coloring with transparent oil paint, very translucent oil paint, that allows the detail of the photograph to show through, but tints the picture with a particular color. Uh, was something that was really quite often done. Uh, William Notman was especially known, a British uh, photographer, uh, known for his elaborately hand-colored work. And it's really kind of fun sometimes to watch the sort of behind-the-scenes part. I mean, Notman obviously is spending a lot of time on delicately shading the the face of the child uh, a little less time on the dress, but also kind of blending his colors out here, knowing that ultimately this is going to be matted with some sort of oval or circular mat, so he's not too worried about where the brush strokes go outside of uh, the image. This image was a multi-image composite that then was very, very carefully, very painstakingly uh, hand-colored. And then I've got this, you may remember seeing this tin type live in the in the classroom early on in the semester uh, a tin type that's been very elaborately but kind of chunkily hand colored uh, you know giving a little, her little feather and her cap here and adding a little highlight to her eyes and a necklace here and so forth and so on and then what, one of my favorite parts is that they obviously decided that they didn't want the, the floor whatever the floor was so they paint this sort of crazy just, quickie-quickie kind of a, kind of a, rug, of, like a rug of snakes, right? <laughs> yeah, the paint doesn't look like it's clear, like they kind of just No, this is like, you know, the whole background is all blotted out, so you can sort of see where they they used some sort of, uh, you know, goopy paint that they then like laid like some the, sort of yeah. texture thing yeah. over to make a texture for the background, but you can see where they kind of carefully painted in around like the, the edges dresses. of her head, so... The dress is real. But the face kind of looks like it was definitely just like painted on almost. It looks more like a painting. A, but the bottom of the dress doesn't look real. Yeah, the bottom of the dress doesn't look real because I think they just sort of like made a, made a decision about where to end the dress, where to start the snake rug, you know? It's like, and this is just something I picked up in, a, in an antique store, so it's, um, it's just a crazy, crazy and picture, you know, right? But you can really see how and this is a tin type, so the tin type, very inexpensive picture. Somebody might uh, you know spend 50 cents or a dollar on the photograph, but maybe another dollar on having some of the retouching done, a little rouge added to her cheeks, a little yeah. color to the eyes, et etc. So um, The other thing that we've looked at is pictorialist photographers. these guys who came in uh, kind of more or less two camps, straight photographers, and those who altered the image. And we've looked at the idea before and considered the idea that both of these groups, the straight pictorialist photographers and the manipulative pictorialist photographers, were both interested in promoting the art of photography, but wound up going about it in radically different ways. So here's Kesebier's photograph of Stieglitz, and then Steichen's self-portrait with the radical gum bichromate material laid over the top. So... Uh, there was this uh, desire uh, for, uh, uh, for making images look like something else. And that desire was about a desire for beauty and art. Because you will remember that our, uh, our discussions about the pictorialist and secessionist photographers centered around their desire to have their medium perceived as an art form. And so... Uh, they arrived at a wide variety of processes that they emphasized. And we've talked about gum bichromate uh, as a great manipulative uh, medium. Uh, we've also uh, sort of, you know, I haven't really talked about bromoil. If you've been reading along in the textbook, you would have seen uh, bromoil mentioned using pigments to create images. It's often lumped together with other pigment processes like gum bichromate. Uh, but bromoil started out by using a regular bromide enlarging or printing paper uh, and then uh, was bleached in a variety of ways to provide a kind of a resist that could be inked up with oil-based inks and then pressed onto a piece of paper. Uh, so uh, bromoil was a popular manipulative process. Platinum was a popular process, uh, and as we've seen, platinum in and of itself was... Pretty straightforward, but platinum could be used as an underlayment for other kinds of processes that would go on top, like, for example, gum bichromate. And then there's also a fairly extreme manipulation of both the negative and the print. So here in Frank Eugene's photograph uh, that is Adam and Eve, uh, part of his strategy was to literally take the negative and snap it over the edge of a table to... Uh, and then reassemble the negative, put it back together, and print it, so that what he got was a a very literal kind of break uh, between the the previous Adam and Eve and the post-Apple Adam and Eve. So um, manipulation of the print and the negative, uh, and then scratching the negative you can see here, and then probably printed in gum by chromate to kind of give this uh, ethereal look to it. Uh, And you may recall that one of the critical uh, uh, sort of reactions that people had to this kind of photography when people were doing it during this pictorialist era, uh, a critic of pictorialist photography from around 1900 wrote this. He said, we have here merely the excesses of a diseased imagination, which has been fostered by the ravings of a few lunatics, That would be Stieglitz among them. Um, They are mere endeavors to be unacademic, unconventional, and eccentric. And yet, of course, as we've seen, it didn't stop photographers who were trying to figure out how to make pictures that didn't look like photographs in order to elevate their medium to high art with a capital A. So they're really trying to figure out a way around, but they're doing it uh, by uh, rather dramatic manipulation of uh, their uh, of of their medium. So a question that arises, and you know we talked about when we talked about Stieglitz and the Pictorialist and the photo secession, is the confusing difference between what Stieglitz and his friends say they're doing and what they actually do. And we sort of talked about the fact that they said they wanted photography to be this straightforward medium, and yet a lot of them, like uh, Alvin Langdon Coburn, are practicing, fairly heavily manipulated photography. And there's a kind of conundrum there, a confusion between those two things. And one of the things that I might think about is, is it possible that they were manipulating images simply because they could? Is it possible that their work is a reaction to the series of technologies that appeared before them at a particular time and allowed them to do the things that they're doing? So is it possible that this is the 19th or early 20th century version of Instagram? You know, Instagram arrives on the scene and allows us to do these sort of crazy-looking filtration things to the images. But is it? are we doing it because Instagram gives us this tool to be able to do it and then you know, share that work out in the world somewhere? So we'll sort of kind of come back to that idea here another idea that we're coming back to here that we've already talked about at least a little bit uh, but we got to come back again in this particular class session is uh, or are these three things the Bauhaus, Dada, and surrealism. So you'll remember that the Bauhaus uh, was an art and design school that taught form with function. Form with function. That form should follow function and function should follow form. That the two things were interchangeable, that you couldn't have one without the other. So that a thing that was being designed should not only be beautiful, but it also should be highly functional. And it was, in fact, a physical school. And you know, just to want to differentiate between when we talk about a school of thought you know, or a school of artistic strategy, uh, this was an actual physical school with classrooms and chairs and the whole deal. So, uh, so there's the Bauhaus. And then there's Dada, Uh, which was uh, a nihilistic movement in the arts that flourished chiefly in France and Switzerland and Germany from about 1916 to 1920, or approximately 1920. And it was based on principles of deliberate irrationality, anarchy and cynicism, and a rejection of the laws of beauty and social organization. So it was sort of, you know, the... the, uh, punk rock of its era, right? It was the strategy of abandoning everything that had come before and saying that the only thing that mattered was chaos, deliberate irrationality, anarchy, cynicism, etc., cetera, et cetera, So uh, nihilism. And then uh, surrealism. In the 1920s, the world of dreams and Freud's ideas of the subconscious became topics of consideration and discussion for a group of artists and writers and photographers. And they began to call themselves surrealists because of their interest in matters beyond the literal or beyond the real. Uh, and from their meetings uh, emerged a manifesto of surrealism. Uh, and what's important is, uh, is that each of these uh, medias, each of these strategies, each of these groups used photography fairly extensively. So um, I'm going to read to you the Manifesto of Surrealism. Don't try to write this down. This is like one of those super easy Google deals. Type in Surrealism Manifesto, and you'll find 1,000, 10,000, 20,000 copies of it. But uh, it helps to kind of get you acclimated to this idea of surrealism. So this was their manifesto, at least the beginning of it. Surrealism, noun pure psychic automatism by which it is intended to express either verbally or visually the true function of thought, thought dictated in the absence of all control exerted by reason and outside all aesthetic or moral preoccupations. Surrealism is based on the belief in the superior, superior reality of certain forms of association heretofore neglected in the omnipotence of the dream and in the disinterested play of thought. So surrealism presents, um, this is me now, surrealism presents in meticulous detail recognizable scenes and recognizable objects which are taken out of their natural context, distorted, combined in crazy and, and radical ways as they might be in dreams. So imagine the kind of wackiest dream you've ever had that you can remember—you know, being chased by your first-grade teacher down the hall with a pair of scissors while you're wearing galoshes and flying a kite, you know, like whatever it is—and um, uh, you've got an idea of surrealism. So it is uh, all of this stuff sort of combined together in kind of sort of wild ways as they might be in dreams. It's a movement, the surrealism movement, is a movement that continues throughout World War II and beyond and is still in many ways active in our world today. So uh, to kind of give you a sense of where these three art movements kind of come together, Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, Moholy-Nagy, Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, this, by the way, is one of those, uh, you know, if, if you can pronounce his name <laughs> at the end of the course... Uh, you know, it becomes like one of those photo cocktail party things. You know, oh, you must have, you must have know, you must know photography. You know, to pronounce. You know, so if you say Moholy Nagy, all bets are off. <laughs> Moholy Nagy. Um, so, uh, he was an influential teacher at the Bauhaus. Uh, he was, in fact, one of the people who kind of founded the general ideas of the Bauhaus. And in doing so, he attempted to find. Uh, some new ways of seeing uh, in seeing in the world and experimented with radical uses of photographic materials in an attempt to replace the pictorial conventions of the 19th century with what he called a new vision. A new vision, which was compatible with modern life in the world. So uh, he was really working with photographic materials, combining them in collaged or what he called montaged ways. Uh, and even playing around with what you could do with photographing projection or photographing photographs over again and experimenting with that. Uh, one of the Dadaist artists and uh, um, and also sort of crossing over into surrealism is uh, Man Ray. Man Ray who said, it has never been my object to record my dreams, just the determination to realize them. It's never been my object to record my dreams, just the the determination to realize them, uh, making photogrammic images. And then uh, a guy named uh, uh, John Hartfield, uh, who was actually born Helmut Herzefelde. Helmut Herzefelde, born in Germany, uh, and changed his name to John Hartfield in 1916 in protest against German nationalism. So he changed his name as a protest move. He was strongly critical of the Weimar Republic, very critical of Nazi Germany. Uh, his art was banned there throughout, throughout Hitler's Third Reich. You can kind of see why with this image of Hitler opening his mouth and ingesting all of the money into his gullet. Uh, and uh, uh, was radical in the kinds of visual images that he put out that were intended to be political propaganda. And what was interesting about many of these photographers, Man Ray, moholy Naj, and a number of others who were involved in, in making images during this time, Hartfield wasn't a photographer, per se. He was merely a designer guy. I shouldn't say merely. He was a designer who would come up with these ideas of photographs that he wanted to make. And he would commission photography or find an image that he felt would lend itself to being collaged or montaged together in this way and would create these images. Uh, For Hartfield, the message was always primary. The message was more important than, than the image. And in fact, when you find a lot of his images, they are fairly low quality because they were not really intended to be hung on a wall in a gallery. They were intended to be mass produced in newspapers and magazines and put on posters, and spread all around cities to act as protest. Andrew? So are you saying he was more of like a graphic designer? Than a more of a graphic designer, but using photographs in a really dramatic way. So sometimes he'd make his own photographs, okay. and other times he'd like commission photographers to make a photograph, or he'd find a photograph that a photographer made and said, and i got to use this to make this document that I want to make. Uh, so... In a sense, he acted more as an originator of ideas and employed photographers to carry out uh, his instructions on how to create things. So so as we continue along the line of talking about manipulated photography, let's talk about one of the great photography manipulators of all time, (laughs) Ansel Adams. Wait a minute, Ansel Adams? Ansel Adams in a manipulated images class? How could it be? Because we don't really think about Adams as being a strong manipulator of photography. Dodge and burn. And yet, he really was. So, uh, you know, let's just sort of quickly give a little bit of a historical lesson in black and white film-based photography. Something that's sort of, you know, shuffled off to the side at least a little bit in today's world. Uh, but if the original scene in, the black and, in, a, in, a, in a photograph looked like this and it was shot with black and white film without a filter, the result was something that looked like this. But uh, what was discovered was that if if the emulsion was panchromatic, remember how we talked about the wet plate collodion being overly sensitive to blue and insensitive to red? It was what was called (coughs) orthochromatic, sensitive only to a certain segment of the spectrum. But black and white film, as it went along, became panchromatic, sensitive to all colors, in such a way that when you made the photograph, what you got was every color being represented more or less as the same intensity of gray or white or black. But if a panchromatic, sensitive to all colors of the spectrum film, was exposed through a yellow filter, you got something like this. And if you expose that through a red filter, it blocked out all of the blue light, meaning that this became underexposed, and some of the other bits and pieces that were red uh, and yellow and so forth became more exposed, relatively speaking. So this is a technology piece that has been in place since panchromatic film arrived in, oh, the 1920s or so. So what Adams did. So, how was the application of the filter in that? Filter on the front of the camera. <laughs> on the front. Okay. Front of the camera. All right. So what Adams did was he took that idea, and uh, and used it to his advantage. So uh, here he is uh, talking about uh, about visualization, about his method of thinking about photography. Uh, so. Uh, He first said he saw uh, what he called the majesty of the sculptural shape of the dome in the solemn effect of half sunlight and half shadow. And he took a picture of it without a filter over the lens of the camera. After taking the photograph, he wrote that he realized that what he saw in his mind would not be conveyed properly by the unfiltered image. And he only had one plate left to work with. This was in the days of glass plates, which were also... Uh, panchromatic, uh, in in that time period. And so he wrote, I saw the photograph as a brooding form with deep shadows and a distant, sharp, white peak against a dark sky. I had not been able, as he goes on to say, I had been able to realize a desired image, not the way the subject appeared in reality, but how it felt to me and how it must appear in my finished print. And he did that by putting a red filter, a deep red filter, over the lens of the camera. And he said, my photographs have now reached a stage where they are worthy of the world's critical examination. I have suddenly come upon a new style which I believe will place my work equal to anything of its kind. So what's interesting here is that we don't necessarily think of this as manipulation of the medium of photography. But it, in fact, is altering what the camera-based image gives. But it's altering it based on this idea that Adams had of what he wanted the image to look like and, more importantly, what he wanted it to feel like. And then, I love this, I eagerly await new concepts and processes. I believe that the electronic image will be the next major advance. You will see perfectly beautiful images on an electronic screen. Such systems will have their own inherent and inescapable structural characteristics, and the artist and functional practitioner, that's you guys, will again strive to comprehend and control them. So this is Adams from his autobiography written in the early 1980s, before digital photography had really come to uh, hold sway. And in fact, in 1983, when I... Uh, worked briefly with Adams he was excited tremendously excited about the way in which digital photography would change the landscape for photographers and allow him to make photographs that he'd only been able to dream about making before he was especially excited about being able to use some sort of a tool to remove telephone lines uh, which I thought was great right and prior to the time that you know Photoshop and so forth existed there were computers and technology that allowed this to be done, but the computers were room-sized. Uh, they cost you know, lots and lots and lots of money, millions of dollars. And Adams had seen some of this at work and knew that it was coming and really was tremendously sad uh, about the fact that he wouldn't get to see these things happen uh, in his lifetime when he died in 1984. So, uh, And so uh, at the time that Adams uh, uh, died in 1984. He was talking about this device, uh, which had just come onto the marketplace, the Quantel Paintbox. And uh, it had been launched in the early 1980s and really kind of come into its own uh, right about the mid-1980s using custom-designed hardware. And, And in the late 1980s, Quantel embarked on lawsuits against the Adobe Photoshop software package and another package called Matisse made by the SpaceWord graphics company in an attempt to protect the patented aspects of the paint box system. They won the initial case against SpaceWord in 1990 but lost the case against Adobe in 1997 uh, because these guys had actually figured out all of the stuff that Photoshop eventually figured out a little bit later on. Uh, so, uh, but uh, one of the things that began to happen was we began to get uh, actual commercial applications of these kinds of ideas. And one of the first ones uh, was uh, uh, this Queen album released in 1989, uh, The Miracle, uh, which used the Quantel paint box to create this multi-head, almost hydra-like image of the, of the faces of the band members. So uh, so uh, the Quantel paint box is somewhat lost to history, at least a little bit, uh, replaced as it has been by Photoshop and other related technologies. But these kinds of technologies existed, uh, they just hadn't reached sort of escape velocity yet. Before we sort of wind up at the end today, uh, I want to talk a little bit about image manipulation in the late 20th century and on into the 21st century as well. Uh, And it has involved not only manipulated subjects, Uh, but manipulated images and then, of course, trying to deal with this computer age that we find ourselves uh, ensconced in and trying to figure out how we can uh, make sense out of it. So um, if uh, if we have some issues with manipulated imagery and trying to figure out what that is, what happens when we have manipulated subjects? Uh, So... uh, in contrast to images that announce their synthetic nature, what do we do about the rest of the photographic world? So what do we do about Trolsch and Lendorf who meticulously hand-paint a nude photographic subject and put that subject in front of a background that in a sort of camouflage-like fashion matches up <coughs> with the subject itself and then make a photograph of it? taking that two-dimensional reality and reducing it to a three-dimensional, I'm sorry, the three-dimensional reality, reducing it to a two-dimensional photograph. So what we're looking at is a nude subject painted to match the rags, the bundle of rags that she's lying down on, and then photographed uh, in front of that situation. And taking the kind of weirdness of that you know, a three-dimensional thing, but now it's a two-dimensional thing and we don't really perceive it in the same way, it's sort of asking us some questions about the two-dimensional, three-dimensional to two-dimensional uh, relationship of of imagery. So I'll give you the hint of there's the hand and there's the arm. And there's the shoulder. It's one of those things. The head. How do you know that? One eye, one eye then it all sort of devolves. Like we know the rest of her torso and everything is there, but it all sort of disappears. So they've given us this little hint. So how do we deal with that? I mean, if it's a, a straightforward photograph that at the same time of being a straightforward photograph is also a heavily manipulated image, what do we do with that? And what do we do with Arno Minkinen? I consider myself, he says, to be a documentary photographer. If you see my leg coming up from underneath the water, I am underneath the water. I treat the medium in the same way a street photographer does. What happens in front of my camera actually happens in reality. There are no double exposures, no digital manipulations. Instead of giving expression to the world's outer appearances and perplexities, I have wished to explore the inner world of our fears, hopes, and desires, in an attempt to make communion with the one world we inhabit. For 30 years now, I've been engaged with this single idea, to use my own body as a means of expressing our relationship to nature. So photographers have always known that straight photographs are actually highly contrived, tremendously subjective. Yet for well over a century, there's been this of unspoken contract between the photographer and the audience and the contract is an agreement of some sort an agreement to embrace the myth of photographic truth so we look at this picture and we sort of imagine that it must be manipulated and yet it's not at all it's a straightforward regular old ordinary black and white darkroom print never digitized shot on film and yet, here we are, looking at this image and trying to figure out what's going on with it. And it's really just all about how Megan imposes himself, where he is, how he works through the process of making the photograph. Gregory Crudson, who says, well, the way, we went, the way we work now, and really it's the only way possible, is to work in a little bit shorter production schedules. When we're shooting on location, we'll work for three or four weeks. We try to shoot enough to make ten pictures, all of which were conceived months before we arrived on our location. When we work on a sound stage, like we did with those house pictures describing this, we work similarly. We'll work a few weeks building four or five sets. In other words, we don't go out just to make one picture. So he builds a house, props it, decorates it, it, brings in a model, and then makes a photograph. He says, first and foremost, Crudson says, I consider myself a photographer in that I'm dealing with the central problem of making a still image grounded in the real world in some way. And yet, I feel very connected to the tradition of arts photography, the work of people like Lee Friedlander and Walker Evans. But that being said, Photography has also easily absorbed the conventions of film, advertising, and popular culture. (coughs) Excuse me. So I think photography is open to everything. I'm not interested in keeping photography separate in a hermetic art existence. In contemporary art, all lines have been blurred. And photography is just one example of that. So when we look at these photographs that Crutzen has made, We're not looking at pictures that are just sort of happenstance. He's created every aspect of everything that we see inside the frame. Made the situation. Made the scene. Figured out where he wants to photograph it from. In this case, a cherry picker that he's rented to get himself into the location that he wants to be able to photograph from. So he turned the school bus over on its side. Yep. Joel Peter Witkin, whose photographs uh, are powerful images of what he calls the human condition, and looking at the beauty within the grotesque, he has a tremendous and very deep interest in spirituality and the way it impacts the physical world in which we exist. So uh, he says that uh, he pursues, quote, complex issues through people most often cast aside, through people most often cast aside by society. Human spectacles, including hermaphrodites, dwarfs, amputees, carcasses, people with odd physical capabilities, fetishists, and any living myth, anyone bearing the wounds of Christ. It can initially... Uh, begins all of his images by sketching his ideas out on paper, perfecting every detail by arranging the scene before he gets into the studio to stage elaborate tableau. Then he spends hours in the darkroom, abrading his negatives and making photographic prints that both hint at 19th century kinds of imagery, uh, but also look much more made than taken. There's a tweet going out here about Witkin talking about his work video that's pretty interesting so it's not just about the art world either in the Soviet Union the years 1929 to 1953 were the years of Stalin's rule uh, the dictator Stalin so Stalin uh, has agents who arrest and kill anyone who disagreed with his politics calling them enemies of the people and so he would then have communist party workers remove any trace of those people from photographic archives so that the people were disappeared not only in their life but also in any evidence that had ever connected them to, uh, to the political reality. So uh, this guy who was uh, Nikolai Yeznov was a senior figure in the Soviet secret police. He fell out of favor with Stalin and was uh, excised uh, from the and excised excise from every image, excise from the annals of history. So revisionist history. How do we have the one that's not removed, If he was removed? They found it in an archive. Oh, okay. Yeah, of like secret Soviet stuff. What um, happened but, to yeah. the person It. That- there's a great, there's a great, uh, um, i trying to remember the name of it. I don't think I have it on that slide, but it... Uh, I'll try to remember the name of the website that's about, it's, it's all about Stalin's, Stalin's removal of people from photographs. So, well, it's the Commissar of, Vanishes, that's the name of the website, and I think it's thecommissarvanishes.com. It's great. Kind of, kind of like the Egyptians going in and yeah. taking names off, off the structures. Then we have Jerry Ewellsman. Ewellsman's solidly within the Surrealist tradition. It's why we looked at surrealism earlier today, uh, because Ewellsman, who believes that the darkroom is what he calls a visual research lab, still working at this today, began his exploration of multi-image photography in the 1960s and has been doing it ever since. Uh, Oftentimes, extraordinarily elaborate imagery that very carefully and very painstakingly take up to six different enlargers with a negative in each one and moving the print paper from enlarger to enlarger, combining images in such a way to create illusions that never really existed. And what's fascinating about this is that, you know, when, at least in my experience, when I first encountered Jerry Ewellsman's work uh, long before I knew anything about the history of photography, I was flabbergasted. How incredibly cool is this? But of course... It has this tremendous precedent, right, of all these photographers who manipulated the way the world looks. Uh, Ewellsman says, the contemporary artist is not bound to a fully conceived, pre-visioned end. His mind is kept alert to in-process discovery, and a working rapport is established between the artist and his creation. Is it not, is it not conceivable that the mind knows more than the eye and the camera can see? And he really thinks of the darkroom as the place where he makes most of his creative work. He goes out into the world and photographs, but the photographs are merely fodder for what it is that he's doing. It's also interesting to note that Ewellsman was given uh, in this sort of comic picture here, uh, Ansel Adams and Imogen Cunningham, awarding Jerry Ewellsman the title of honorary West Coast photographer. So, you know, they welcomed him into the club because uh, not only, you know, was, is Jerry an all-around great guy, but uh, they also recognized that his tradition was fairly closely aligned with their tradition. So that, that's the same woman we saw in you know, Carson's show last week, right? So there he is on his knees supplicating before the group F-64. So this is a photograph by, oh, I guess I put it on the slide. Ted Orland made this photograph in 1969. Ted Orland, uh, very well-known or uh, photography that, that deals with a lot of humor. So uh, if you're interested in humorist photography, Orland is an interesting subject. Also interesting to note that at some point, the Adobe folks got hold of Jerry Yulesman and they said, hey, we've got tools that will allow you to do this combination of imagery uh, faster, easier, better. And Jerry was intrigued for a little while, not... Tremendously intrigued, but a little bit of intriguement, he said making up a word, uh, uh, of of playing around with this stuff. But ultimately he realized that the joy that he had in photography actually came from the process in the darkroom, not the process in the computer. So uh, they introduced him to it, but ultimately he rejected what it was that he was interested in doing. Doesn't his wife do it digitally though? So She's this is what's really interesting is that uh, Julesman is married to Maggie Taylor right. whose world is entirely a digital world and in fact so much so that Maggie Taylor doesn't even use a camera for her images. They're all scanned. Which is a camera. Which is a camera-ish, right? So. so if we kind of march through some of the things that have happened in our media world, we've got this. 1982, National Geographic moved the pyramids to fit the cover of the magazine. They recognized, once they got the picture that they wanted to use, that once they formatted it to the unusual format that National Geographic uses for its cover, that the pyramids wouldn't fit. So they did something that they called retroactive repositioning of the photography. How much do you love that? Retroactive repositioning of the photographer. It's like one of the great euphemisms of the digital photography age. And what they said was if the photographer had been a little bit to one side, they would have gotten the pyramids lined up the way they wanted to with the, uh, it's kind of hard to see in our slide here, but with the guys on camels in front. uh, And uh, uh, this was a huge hue and cry that arose out of this, right? Because... The idea that National Geographic was manipulating imagery to fit something was something that was seen as being a, kind of, a, a, you know, a, a, a bad thing to do. So and, of course, what goes, go ahead. Religious. Wait, no disclaimers on the inside? No disclaimer on the inside. It was discovered afterwards when people realized, hey, you can't stand there and see <laughs> that. So what, so, what do they do? Like, just... They took the they took the two pyramids and moved them closer together. Oh, they're not actually that they're not actually that close mm-hmm. from the point of view that would allow you to have the light behind them like that. They're they're much farther apart, so they just moved them closer together so they could get the peak of both pyramids in the picture. How long did it take people to realize? Uh, not very long. It was it was almost instantaneous. And what so, did they do? The, all they did was they said that they re- retroactively repositioned the photographer. They didn't do anything uh, other than, you know, so. And then, of course, in 1989, the cover of uh, TV oh, yes. Guide had uh, Oprah Winfrey's head on Anne Margaret's uh, artificially tanned-to-match body. Uh, and, of course, that was, uh, that was an, an uproar. But an even bigger uproar was this uh-huh. one. Uh, in 1994, the very same week, O.J. Simpson appeared on both the covers of Time and the cover of Newsweek. The same exact week, same exact photograph used for the base image, but obviously one heavily manipulated and another one not heavily manipulated. And so, of course, there arose from this all kinds of conversation about how we perceive skin color versus guilt how we see uh, criminals as dark-skinned people, you know, that whole conversation rises to the top. And uh, it probably would have gone maybe not unnoticed, but perhaps uh, uh, maybe not as, as big a deal if both magazines hadn't arrived on the newsstands at exactly the same time, so that you're walking by the newsstand and you see the same exact photograph treated dramatically differently. I've always been also very intrigued by this hard image here, heavily vignetted, skin made much darker and much more contrasty, and then the sort of soft headline, an American tragedy. Whereas this picture, much softer in every possible way, a standard mugshot, trail of blood. So a very different treatment that maybe ultimately winds up in the same sort of spot in some way. But it did begin a really important conversation, not only about things like retroactively repositioning a photographer or whether it's okay to put one person's head in another person's body, but how manipulation of photographs affects the way we perceive things in the public eye. I, for the first time, I'm noticing the actual mug, uh, his uh, prisoner number and the text is very different. Uh, it's bigger, I think. Just yeah, it's just, it's just that his, his head is bigger. I mean, it's, it's partly because, you know, Time, Time made him a little smaller uh, and vignetted around the edge, okay. and Newsweek made him a little bit bigger. Okay. So we get a little bit more, and, you know, Time has that red border around the outside. Newsweek but, doesn't. But the text does look very different. It does. Like Between the two. Yeah, so they might have, yeah, it looks like it's enhanced right, a little yes, bit or something. And, of course, like, there's a mailing label problem there, too. They've expanded the, the size the of the letters, yeah. and, and they yeah. made it more... Pro- made it more prominent? prominent. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I hadn't noticed right that. Inside. I hadn't but, noticed that either. But they manipulated the mailing address so you could see through it. Yeah, I'm not sure what what, <laughs> what happened there. I don't know whether that's just the spot where the where the label would go and it was rendered translucent to begin with or not. So... It doesn't look like his his white shirt is much bigger on the Newsweek one. Like they just expanded the whole picture and the whole size yep. of the image. They bloated it. Yeah, Maybe yeah. It but it just, it's like they put it on a on a copy machine and said, "I want a hundred and ten or a hundred and fifteen Yeah. So he's image. just he's blown up quite a bit, yeah. and it doesn't really appear that way because the weight of his much darker skin on the right hand picture mm-hmm. it, it plays plays as heavier. So um, so that was one sort of salvo uh, 1994 also in 1994 was this one Art Wolf now Art Wolf uh, a photographer known to some of you perhaps but maybe not to all of you uh, is considered one of the most important nature photographers in the history of the medium of photography nature photographers of the sort of people who you know go out into the natural world and make photographs of animals and natural things out there in the world and Nature photographers are a particular breed, in a way, uh, because they are oftentimes equal parts naturalist as they are photographers. So they're people who understand a lot more about the natural world, know more about the natural world. So R. Wolf, a very famous, very well-respected naturalist photographer, nature photographer, produced this book called Migrations in 1994. And Migrations was a book about Migratory animals and about the way in which they move from one habitat to another. And uh, uh, what was discovered later on, after the book had been published, was that about a third of them were fairly heavily digitally manipulated. And in the nature photographer's world, this was a terrible, terrible, Because the nature photographer is the sort of person who brings along a spool of thread to tie back the branch, you know, the little thin branch to make sure that that branch doesn't enter their photograph but also make sure that at the end of the photo shoot that they untie the thread and put the branch back where it was. And I'm not making fun. I'm just saying that it's that degree of care that they have for the natural world. So what was discovered is that Art Wolfe had made this photograph, but... Somebody figured out that the same zebra was duplicated about eight nice. times in this yeah. picture. Yeah. The same zebra was duplicated over and over again. But it's the and cover. he caught, well, inside of the book, oh. about a third of the images were manipulated. And so Art Wolff said later on, In migrations, I embraced the technology that was available to me. And I took the art of the camera to its limits. It wasn't a moral issue. It was just in the beginning we were naive. We didn't use any identification to say that this was a manipulated photograph. And he says that's the sole issue. Photography has never been an accurate recording of what's out there. For years, photographers have manipulated images by using different lenses and filters and films and in the darkroom. And in the end, he said he altered about a third of the images in the book. And this unleashed a firestorm in the nature of photography world, especially in the nature of photography world which went to the pages of their magazines, Outdoor Photographer and Nature Photographer, and berated Art Wolf for changing the way the image looked. Galen Rowell, a contemporary of Art Wolf's and a very accomplished Nature Photographer in his own right, was among those who criticized migrations. He wrote a five-page letter to Art Wolf, which was published in Nature Photographer magazine, and in it he scolded his friend but also professed admiration for his work. And his bottom line in this letter was, don't do anything you wouldn't feel comfortable having revealed in a caption. So there was this new conversation about what should happen. And then what was really interesting, this is in 1994, and in 1995, here's Galen Rowell, who comes out with a book called Mountain Light. And he said, in order to make the cover image fit the aspect ratio of the cover of the book, We had to chop and channel it like an old hot rod. And for those of you who are not familiar with your hot rod terminology, I have put this up here. Chopping is to chop the roof and the pillars so that the roof line is narrower or shorter. And channeling is to remove some of the channels underneath so that the body sits lower on the frame. Uh, So he said, we chopped and channeled the picture like an old hot rod. They took a whole section of image out of here, so that the image would fit on the cover. So Galen Rowell, Raul, who's complaining about nature photographers manipulating their images, said, hey, we just chopped and channeled it like an old hot rod. So the cat was out of the bag. Photographers were manipulating images left, right, and center. Uh, and uh, a bunch of years pass, and we get this guy, Adnan Haj, manipulating this photograph of Beirut after a bombing. And... Uh, uh, there are a couple of things about this. One is that uh, this uh, uh, photograph by Lebanese photographer Haj uh, was uh, was bought by Reuters and put out on their news service. Uh, and it was shortly after that that somebody said, "You know, that image on the right isn't correct." I can see the clone stamp. Yes. Yeah. And and of course, the most amazing thing is that somewhere at Reuters. There was a photo editor who let through something that we wouldn't let through in photo eleven oh one, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, we tell the photo eleven oh one student, you know, you gotta resample every once in a while to kind of get it to look natural, right? Yeah. So it's crazy because it looks completely fake. Uh, so uh after the forgery of the image was Organized. discovered, Hajj was dismissed and the photos were pulled from the Reuters service and uh he has not worked for uh, any major news agency since then, um, so we can kind of see this. But this one's a little bit uh, hey. a little bit stranger. What? The, let me go back. The one on the back. The one is the one on the left. The original. The one on the left is the original. Yeah. Okay. Why manipulate? You didn't even yeah. improve it at all. Like you well, made the smoke the blacker. Right, right. Yeah. On the side or side well, like it just made the image darker, which gives yeah. it an ominous tone, exactly. more of an ominous tone. Well, why did he more I just yeah. feel like it was unnecessary. Unnecessary manipulation. So uh, this one is uh, uh, a photograph by Alan Detrick of the Toledo Blade newspaper. And this one's really interesting because it raises some different kinds of questions. So um, here's the problem, those legs oh, yeah. underneath the right-hand uh, uh, set of numbers. Uh, and uh, so you can kind of see see what's going on there. I'll take those, take that circle away so you can sort of see what's what's what. So uh, the dilemma is that uh, news photographs should be completely natural, right? They shouldn't be manipulated because otherwise we're then uh, led to believe that this real photograph is real and maybe it isn't. And you know, we might look at this and say, well, yeah, it does totally make the picture better. You know, it makes the picture a better composition and a little less weird to have those legs sticking, not sticking out from under there. But from the news photographer's point of view, it is an an, an unacceptable manipulation of the photograph. Now, the story here is that these numbers of these players, these were players who had been uh, killed in some sort of... Uh, car accident or something. So that's why those numbers have to be in the picture. So that's why we have to have the crop that we have so that those numbers show up in the image. And I'm sure that Detrick thought he was doing the right thing, uh, but he was uh, he was not doing the right thing, and he was fired from the Toledo Blade. Uh, partly from this photograph, which was the sort of the last straw that broke the camel's back, what they did is they went back through the archives and they discovered that he had manipulated hundreds of photographs, removing details, adding details, putting things in where they didn't belong, removing microphones from people's hands, you know, all (laughs) kinds of like stuff that nobody had ever really caught him on before. Uh, So uh, the question about realism in journalism is another question of the manipulated image. And then there's this, Red Book Magazine's cover 2007. And you've probably seen a number of other examples of this. This is just a pair of images that I've sort of put together in a looping little video so you can kind of see this. Um, So, you know, here is, uh, you know, Faith Hill on the cover of Red Book magazine, the original photograph, and then the the manipulated photograph of what they've done to make her look more what? Thinner. Thinner, certainly. The taken the bags from the under ass. her eyes, you know, changed the sort of structure of her shoulder, added a bit more hair, changed the foreshortening of her arm. So, and of course, on one level, this just tells us about the way in which fashion photography has sort of what it, what it's become. But it also begins to help us ask questions about body image. What we put out there in the world as correct or incorrect body image for women in the world. Uh, This has especially become a bigger issue with younger women and the way in which body image is portrayed and uh, what perfection is supposed to look like and whether perfection is attainable. uh, it's a it 's a really interesting uh, it 's an interesting question of uh, of how this works yeah, the pictures only reality now. <laughs> and then there 's this this one is a is an especially interesting photograph uh, because all it really deals with at least in part is a crop a crop and then a clone right because there 's more space to the right of uh, Obama than there is available here. Uh, so uh, this was on the cover of the Economist, Obama versus BP. This reads the reads the rather uh, editorialized headline, right? And then the original photograph here on the right. Uh, this is uh, one of the leaders of the of the parish uh, there, that uh, sort of like an alderman here. Uh, or county chairman or somebody uh, who is showing Obama the the site of the spill, and this is somebody from a uh, cleanup team. So it not only changes the, the the look of the photograph, but it completely changes the way in which we read the photograph. Was that photojournalist fired as well? Because uh, the total... in this case, the photojournalist sold the Economist this picture for the cover. Oh, okay. but. The picture was on the cover this way. Yeah, so so, who did that, so The Economist did it. The Economist makes the editorial decision to put a downcast, defeated looking Obama, which is completely different. I mean, he's listening here, right? Yeah. So and yeah. you know it, in some ways it doesn't even matter where you fall on the political spectrum, right. because we can really see how this change of this photograph now begins. To change our perception of what it is that the photograph is saying. So, is he listening to people who are telling him about this, or is he in sort of full-on lamentation mode? And they darkened the whole image down. Too. Yep, darkened the image. Uh, you know, cropped, cropped in a little bit so that we don't see, you know, some of the materials that are being used to clean up or the, you know, the, the, you know tape, police tape line. So it changes the tenor of the photograph in a complete way. Well, it completely undermines their credibility as the economist now, to mm-hmm. me. I mean, because ethically, in photojournalism, that's totally off the table. You're not allowed to do anything like that at all. <laughs> so, so the economist would say it's not a journalistic image. It's an editorial image. It helps support our editorial tape. The photographer, of course, was incensed because he sold the right-hand picture and not the left-hand picture. Now, if that had some kind of fake-looking something to it, then it is an editorial illustration, but that looks like a totally real photograph. So they're passing it off as that. They're not passing it off as an editorial illustration in any way. So... I think it, yeah. And of course, one thing that, the, you know, and I don't, I don't know this to be true or not true, but, you know, if we opened the front cover of the magazine and saw a smaller image of this image with words like, illustration by economist, artist, Billy Smith, would that change our perception of what it is that it is? And the answer is, maybe a little, for the 1% of the people who are going to see that, that caption information. So, uh, and one of the things that I'm that I'm wanting to point out here when we look at these journalistic images or, or editorial images is for us to begin to pay more attention to what it is that we're seeing in the world, you know, and what it is that it might have been and where we can get trusted news and how news, you know, and one of the things that I think is a reality of our current time, certainly over the last decade or maybe more, is a tremendous striation in the news media, right? You know, whatever medium we look at, read, or watch changes rather dramatically the way in which we get the news. The news is spun now a lot more than it probably ever has been, or at least that it has been in our modern age of television journalism uh, or even newspaper journalism, which is now frequently spun in a particular way. Um, you know, it probably always has been to a, to a certain degree, but uh, it seems as though it's accelerating at a, at a pace. So, Andrew? I don't know. What I find interesting is, like, Time Magazine, it's not that they manipulate the photos, but for America, the cover and the headlining story is completely different than for the rest of the world. That's fairly normal is it That's fairly normal because they're they're putting in content that uh, matters more for you know other people reading it mm-hmm. who are you know perhaps less interested in something that's happening in the US Congress and more interested in what's happening in the Italian parliament for example. Well no, it's like America is different and then each of the other countries is all the same. Like oh, Europe, I see what you mean. Yeah, so like they'll have let's say there's the one for like Europe, Australia, and like Asia, those will be the same while whereas the one for the U.S. is different. That's because we're so U.S. centric. Yeah. If you go outside the U.S. and you travel and you listen to the news you will be amazed on how global the news is compared to how our news here is so U.S. centric. Yeah. Yep. Totally. We are so, and I, I think it has to do with the geography. I don't like to get it other because we're so huge that we're know, they're next to each other so much so much more that they interact so differently than we do. We're like isolated. I don't know. That's a polite way of saying it. I mean I have <laughs> other I have other... <laughs> 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 I'm not getting into them here. So but okay. <laughs> But we're so US centric that, that's yeah. good. <laughs> I have other opinions. I'm not getting into them. Either. So I also want to talk a little bit about the world of art photography in, in the 20th century and the 21st century. So uh, a guy named Peter Campus. I found that with the computer I could bring out qualities in my pictures that I thought were important. I could change colors and textures, I could eliminate some parts, exaggerate others, totally fabricate anything. In this way I could make my attitudes more clear. I want to show how we sentimentalize nature, and by doing that he wrote it. So uh, as we begin to look at some of these other pictures, I want to sort of, kind of shift our emphasis in some way to talk about uh, digital photography and digital imaging and how it doesn't really represent that much of a change from the methods and the problems of the past. Uh, In a way, it's a return to the methodologies of the 19th century photographer, as those photographers had no professional labs to develop their images. Back then, in the 19th century, the Carlton Watkins of the world were expected to create images as well as produce finished prints or tintypes or daguerreotypes. And for much of the history of the photograph, commercial photographers maintained their own darkrooms to maintain control over the image's quality from start to finish. But the use of roll film, especially 35 millimeter film, during photojournalism's rise in popularity in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, saw news services and freelancers begin to use professional photo labs to develop their film and make their prints that were needed by designers and artists. And what's interesting is that we've now come full circle. We've now come all the way back around to the 19th century again, where all of the controls of image making, from image capture through retouching, through the creation of printed material, becomes the province of the photographer. It's been really interesting to watch. So Martina Lopez says, I started working with my family archives nearly 12 years ago. It was also at that time that I began to use the computer for art making. Since then, the elements of the family photograph and the electronic media remain prevalent in my work. In the beginning, my images were very autobiographical. They were, in fact, documentation of my own family history. I began incorporating family images beyond my personal album as a way to create a collective history, one that would allow individuals to bring their own memories to my work. So another parallel exists between this most recent turn of the century and the turn of the century from the 1800s to 1900 in terms of technology and the way technology impacted the way things are in the world of imagery. At the turn of the century from the 1800s to 1900, printing presses, offset printing presses, changed the way images could be transmitted. And at the turn of the century between the 1900s and the 2000s, the way the Internet transformed the transmission of images, transmitting pictures so rapidly that we couldn't have even imagined it 20 years before. So in a lot of ways, the wizardry of the digital imaging area brings to mind the magical qualities associated with early photography. So if you think of it this way, Carlton Watkins had the advantage from a technological or quality control point of view to be able to code his own emulsions in the field and then develop the plates there on the spot so he could see what he he had. And here we are with our digital cameras, our ability to change the ISO of their cameras. Anybody notice the new camera that was released this week with ISO of 250,000 as its maximum ISO? Which which camera? Uh, I think it was a Pentax. Nikon released the D4, which is something like 490, 490, 490,000 ISO. Amazing but true. So here we are. We can change our ISO with the flick of a switch. No change of film necessary in the camera. And then post-exposure, we can see whether or not we got the right moment by looking at the LCD on the back of our, our cameras and seeing whether or not we not only got the moment, but whether we got the exposure right by looking at the histogram. So if we think about it, it's another part of this return to the 19th century. Watkins emerges from his darkroom tent relatively secure in the knowledge that he's got the picture that he wants. We look at the back of our DSLRs and have the same kind of information. So the twist is that Watkins needed to be fairly technologically adept. He had to have a tremendous amount of gear along with him, a tremendous amount of experience, a lot of bravado to be out there in the wilderness to make it all go. But today's digital photographer only needs to invest some money and spend a bit of time reading up on what they're doing to get pretty decent results. It's actually one of the sort of complicated parts of being a photographer in the 21st century is that you know the, the price of admission has come down and the ease with which images can be produced has, has gone way, way up. So the part that's most interesting for me is that we're right in the middle of all of this right now. We don't have a lot of definitive answers to some of the questions. And in a lot of ways, the world that we inhabit right now is like being alive at the time from the switch from the daguerreotype to the wet plate. We're really in the middle of that right now. You know, maybe at the tail end of the middle or toward the toward the latter half of the middle, uh, but we're seeing a sea change in the use and the distribution and the conceptual basis for making images. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting is if, either now or 25 or 30 years ago, if I asked this group, how many people do you know who have a full high-end black and white and color darkroom in their house? The answer would be, well, you know, I know one guy, uh, but, you know, he is special, different, you know. Uh, And, you know, really, all of us do, right? We all do. We all have a super high-end black and white and color darkroom sitting in our houses. And really cool about that darkroom is it also helps us balance our checkbook and write an email to our mom and you know the whole deal, right? So darkrooms, chemical darkrooms, are single-function spaces, whereas our computers have become these sort of multi-function spaces that have accomplished so much of what we do every day the fulcrum for our lives. Pedro Meyer, Pedro Meyer, a Mexican photographer. Some of you found Meyer's tremendously useful and wonderful Zone Zero website. I know some of you did because some of you wrote your photo history in the news pieces about zone zonezero.com website. So Meyer's images mix pieces of history introducing saints and devils, reimagining Mexican legend in the contemporary Time, So, uh, looking at the way in which uh, those uh, ancient legends can be transformed. And in a way, there's a certain wow factor that we've always associated uh, with digital photography, uh, especially with the ease in which uh, images can be changed or altered. You know, looking at that Faith Hill picture, it's sort of mind-boggling in a way. that, uh, that those, the picture like that can be changed so easily. And perhaps in some ways that's the difference. We've always wanted to change what the world is, but have only recently been able to create an image that changes reality in such a facile and seamless way. But along with those possibilities, each new process that photography has embraced has brought with it some limits and also some liabilities. Each of them necessitates learning new technical information to take advantage of those potentials. Additionally, it also requires that we formulate some new point of departure or mindset to properly take advantage of the way in which technology can assist us in realizing the visual effect that we want. Osamu James Nakagawa. I was born in the United States, he says, but much of my life has been divided between Japan and America. As a result, I feel like a stranger to both Japanese and English and language, languages and cultures. Photography has become my expressive bridge. In the drive-in theater billboard TV monitor series, I use the idea of a frame within a frame. I digitally paste images that I've photographed, which in my view represent some aspect of American culture, onto various types of screens that are abandoned, decayed, or decadently displayed. And again, I want to look back to our examination of the photo-secessionists. And we noted the irony of the photo-secessionist rhetorical stance in favor of pure photography and the reality of their very painterly, oftentimes, manipulation of their images. And it seems that the technology available to them at the time was seductive enough to compel them to work toward an integration of pure and altered in their work. And it seems as though they altered their images because they they could. And today, I think we find much of the same situation with regard to computers and the ease with which we can change images. Frequently, photographers change the facts of the images simply because they can, not necessarily because it makes pictorial sense. And it's been really interesting to watch that because it sort of is like rolling through that process of how photography works kind of all over again. Paul Thorell, a Frenchman working in Italy, says, in my photographic portraits, I ideally remove the shape and texture from the face and keep only the expression, which is the only element that will remind me of somebody. What I want to create is a photograph in which there is only a vague resemblance to the real person. And so I suppose the question that I want to begin to have you ask yourselves, or that I want to ask anyway is what the psychological motivation is behind changing the way a picture looks. Does it have to do with the same subconscious thought process that has compelled man to sculpt the land with walls and roads? Is there some way that we can link the gum prints of Steichen to the building of ancient Greek temples? Is altering an image's reality in Photoshop somehow spiritually akin to building a great cathedral? Is it the ability to change the way the world is in some way? Is the process of building, manipulating, or changing the way our world is in favor of what we would rather have it be part of what it is to be human? Is our sort of pushing these technologies forward, eventually, at the base of it, the same kind of thing that allowed somebody to build the Colosseum? Could it be that if we had a chance, we'd rather alter the subjects than, ra- than alter the image? So questions to work towards answers to. Diane Fenster. My work derives technically from two different mediums, from the computer, which I first learned as a graphic design tool, and from photography, which I initially used as, a found, as found material in the vintage or family photographs that I used in my art. It also derives from the practice of photography itself, which I began to explore in 1992 by taking my own photographs as a source for the images or photomontages that I had created with my earlier work. My experiments with photography opened a surprising new realm of meaning for my work as I was able to find my own voice and create personal landscapes from images that persistently impelled me to photograph them. Which brings us to a whole other piece of the puzzle, and that is, people who are now drawn to photography because the computer makes photography so much easier than it ever has been before. Again, go back to this idea of whether or not you had a dark room in your house. Anybody have a dark room in their house? At some point you had a dark, at some point I had a house with a dark room in it. don't have that house anymore, but, you know, so here now we have, what's that? (laughs) <laughs> a house with dark rooms. <laughs> yeah, dark rooms. I got a house with dark rooms. Can't afford to turn on the lights like that. Yeah. <laughs> Photographer Amy Guip, who sort of looks at identity issues. Ron Kathari who creates sort of uh, spiritualist images. So here we have photographers who are sort of maybe halfway photographers and halfway illustrators, sometimes making their own photographs or sometimes only using composited materials that they find elsewhere. So where have we seen that before, right? So what goes around comes back around. Howard Schatz, who sometimes photographs figures underwater and sometimes photographs figures not underwater, but manipulates the photographs to make it look like they are. Which one is which, he doesn't say. Albert Watson, who made that portrait that I sort of led off with uh, this afternoon. Also an illustrator, you can see here using some Moybridge images to talk about time and the human body. And Olivia Parker, who we looked at before, uh, I think last week, I think of the themes that inform my images as continually changing paths. Sometimes they disappear for a while, only to emerge and grow and change. Traditional still life in a contemporary form, toys and games, the history of science, museums, the edge between imagination, the man-made, and the natural world are all of interest to me. And then the aforementioned Maggie Taylor, who again happens to be married to Jerry Ewellsman, whose source for her imagery is the antique shop, the junk shop, gathering together objects that she then scans and composites together into these illustrative, illustrative images. And Kelly Cannell. Yeah, me too. These images were created as Cannell Connell, I guess is correct pronunciation, Kelly Connell, these images were created from scanning and manipulating two or more negatives in Adobe Photoshop. Using the computer as a tool to create a believable situation is not that different from accepting any photograph as an object of truth or by creating a story about two people seen laughing, making out, or quarreling in a restaurant. These photographs reconstruct the private relationships that I've experienced personally witnessed in public, or watched on television. The events portrayed in these photographs look believable, yet they've never occurred. By digitally creating a photograph that is a composite of multiple negatives of the same model in one setting, the self is exposed as not a solidified being in reality, but as a representation of social and interior investigations that happen within the mind. This work represents an autobiographical questioning of sexuality and gender roles that shape the identity of the self in intimate relationships. Polarities of identity like masculine and feminine psyche, the irrational and rational self, the exterior and interior self, the motivated and the resigned self are all portrayed. What's your first name? Kelly, Kelly. K-E-L-L-I. And John Paul Caponegro, we've looked at his father's work at least a couple of times uh, during the uh, semester. Uh, Caponegro, a younger guy, photographing uh, uh, with uh, digital technologies and making these kind of uh, uh, almost, uh, again, spiritualist uh, uh, combinations of images. He says, I'm captivated by Rorschach test patterns formed from complex patterns found in nature. Symmetry, Euclidean and fractal geometries, sacred geometries. Those are my interests. And Loretta Lux. Loretta Lux. Here is a a review of Loretta Lux's work from the Village Voice, February 25th of 2004, by uh, their critic Vince Aletti. Uh, Vince titled his piece, Loving the Alien. Loretta Lux, he says, makes pictures of children that are as charming as they are creepy. A sweet and sour combo that proves surprisingly hard to resist, even if you suspect the work is little more than kitsch of the most sophisticated and unnerving sort. Lux turns ordinary children into alluring aliens, icons of innocence so tainted by experience that they already feel antique. Because the work is strangely unmoored in place or time, drifting off into an idyllic past while hinting at a vacuous sci-fi future, it manages to conflate memory and dread, sweetness and blight, in a dreamscape whose specificity reads as completely imaginary. So one more thought is that with computer technology now and our momentary, every moment in some cases, beck and call, how will we as visually astute people carry forward the idea of recording the world around us? How will future historians of the medium judge the photographs of our time? Is our time right now like Stieglitz's secessionists were in the early 1900s? Are we simply subverting the photographic document because we can? Will we find a way to reconcile our interest in presenting the world that we see and our simultaneous interest in changing the way other people see it. Aykroyd and Harvey make ambitious work that juxtapose natural forces of growth and decay with artifice control and randomness, creating time-based images that frequently reflect both scientific and architectural concerns. They say... We are exploring the capacity of grass to record complex photographic images through the production of chlorophyll. The equivalent of the tonal range in a black and white photograph is produced in the yellow and green shades of living grass. Although these organic photographs are exhibited in a fresh state for a short time, excessive light, or lack of it, eventually corrupts the visibility of the image. Our inquiry in how to fix these transient images has brought us close involvement with genetics through research with scientists at the Institute of Grassland and Environmental Research in Wales. These scientists have developed grasses that keep their green color even under stress. In a naturally occurring variant of grass, they identified a gene for an enzyme that degrades the green pigment chlorophyll. And by modulating the expression of this gene, they were able to alter the grass uh, grass' aging behavior and even stop it altogether. So photography as an intersection to the world of science—it's a really interesting way to to look at this, and it, you can sort of see the installation view of these images here. So is that like grass that's growing sideways on a wall, or did they just like? So it's like if you could imagine somebody taking a sod cutter, you know, cutting up and rolling up the roll of sod, and then unrolling it into a box, taking the box and in some way, you know, who knows how they've got it set so that it doesn't fall out of the box, but, you know, something is holding the root structure of the grass so that we can see the images. Bin Don. Bin Don was born in Vietnam in 1977 before his family immigrated to the United States in that same year. He's uh, invented and perfected a technique for printing found photographs, digitally rendered negatives, uh, onto the surface of leaves by exploring, uh, exploiting rather, the natural process of photosynthesis. The leaves, still living, are pressed between glass plates with the negative and exposed for, to sunlight from a week to several months. Coined chlorophyll prints by the artist Don, the fragile works are encapsulated and made permanent. They're casting them in solid blocks of resin. So he's able to, by co-joining process and conceptual ideas, uh, reference history and the technical developments of photography. So I'm walking through uh, one of the SPE conferences uh, a couple of three years ago, three years ago now, and this guy walks up to me, and I look down at his name tag, and, and uh, he, he introduces himself, and he says, i am Ben Dunn. I'm history. He was so excited to be involved in the history of photography class because he had seen the, the images on, on the web. So he sent me catalogs from uh, a show that he had had the work in. And then I'll just leave this up here. He sent me uh, one of his chlorophyll prints. So I'll sort of see that. So I won't pass it around because it's fairly, fairly fragile. But it was, it was funny. He said, I'm history. So... Um, and then uh, Mikhail Somerov, uh Somerov has erased the subject, retaining only the background. A seemingly a limited subject matter, Somarov has made it limitless without, some, without any boundaries. He incorporates an ingenious technical approach to both the photographs and some narrations that he uh, uses to accompany uh, the photograph. He uh, creates a narrative caught in space and time, and what he's done is created a body of work that he calls absence of subject. Where he's taken uh, all of these images uh, and uh, famous images uh, from uh, uh, from history, the history of the medium, and erased the subjects, leaving behind only uh, only the backgrounds. And then Andreas Gursky, sort of lastly here. Rhine 2 is the title of this photograph. It is a uh, signed print in an an edition of six, meaning six of the prints were made. And it is a very heavily digitally retouched image of the banks of the Rhine River, removing any buildings or trees or roadways other than this little sidewalk that we see in the foreground. Uh, And uh, what's interesting is that Gursky's Rhine 2, this image, uh, sold at auction uh, for um, uh, in uh, November, November 8th of 2012 for $4,338,500. Uh, I wonder about that $500. Um, for that? <clears throat> Wait, what size is so that? So huge. Uh, bigger than this wall. It's large, really, really, really large. So, uh, it, it, and it made the picture the most expensive photograph ever sold at auction. Uh, and here it is, a picture that doesn't depict anything real in the world, other than perhaps some of the Rhine River. You know, it's certainly the Rhine River, but uh, he's eliminated boats, he's eliminated buildings, he's eliminated factories, trees, anything else that depicts anything that would place us in space. Um, so... Uh, it's a curious question, right? Because now the question is, you know, where do we go now out of all this jumble of stuff? Where do we go? You know, when does an altered photograph cease to be a document? Should altered photographs come with a warning of some sort? Nah. Unless it's in, like, a newspaper. You know, and it's a question that, it's actually interesting because I think Joanne brought it up when we were talking about the Obama picture on the cover of The Economist by saying, well, you know, did they say that? And, you know, the question is really, if, if we know that it's an illustration, does that, does that make it an okay thing to do? And, you know, the bigger questions of why do we want to alter the real and where is the digital age taking us? And do we want to go there? And, you know, maybe even if we don't want to go there, What's going to happen when we get there, because we're going, right?